We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Online. We're so glad to have you. When I was younger, I had a recurring nightmare that I was adrift at sea on, on a small raft of some kind, and there was nothing around me that helped me orient myself. It was always terrifying because I couldn't see the coastline or anything that helped me know where I was. In fact, the only thing visible was just this expanse of water. I think Freud would have had a good time with this. I don't know what the dream represented, but I'm pretty sure it came from an early childhood real-life experience I had at the beach when I was about seven I was stranded on a sandbar at Fripp Island in South Carolina, and the tide came in around me without me noticing. And in my memory, I was helplessly stuck miles out in the ocean, although really I was probably a couple of hundred yards from the beach. Still, it was disorienting and frightening, hence the setting for the nightmare. Sometimes our lives can feel a little like that. Where am I? And which way do I go? All around me is a vast expense, and I see nothing by which I can orient myself. In fact, our current circumstances feel a little like that. I mean, at first, this whole quarantine thing was annoying, and, and then it got increasingly unsettling. What is going on? Where is this heading? How do we get out of this? I'm reminded of that Will Rogers quote. Last year, we said things can't stay like they are, and they didn't. They got worse. And the longer we linger in this limbo, the deeper our questions drill, don't they? We end up with, what does my life even mean right now? How do I make it through this? What's happening to my children, to my job, to my family? Increasingly, it can feel like we don't have perspective. And often we don't recognize how disoriented we are. We just feel this angst. Well, sometimes the most certain thing around us, especially lately, it seems to be playing the odds. Six feet, pretty safe, wear a mask, even safer. This mask, 10% effective, this kind, 30% effective, less than 1% mortality, or maybe a little over 2%, depending on who you listen to, depending on how old you are, depending on whether you have underlying conditions, if you live in a rural or urban area. So should we do this? Should we do that? What are the odds? 
there's got to be something more certain than the latest odds. There's got to be some way of orienting ourselves so that we know the right way forward. And this is really what we're going to be doing through our next series of conversations. We're going to be orienting ourselves because that's what beliefs do. They orient us. And so we're going to be navigating the basics of our belief. What do we believe as Christians and why does it matter? We're going to use the Nicene Creed to organize our thoughts, but we'll be using the Bible to anchor and guide those thoughts. Here's how this is going to work. We'll break the creed down into seven component parts, and over the next seven weeks, we'll cover one part per week. And we'll try to do three things each week with our time. First, we'll break down one section of the creed, examine what it means. And secondly, we'll try to demonstrate how that section that we're talking about resonates with Scripture. Now, let's admit up front that each section would take weeks if we really tried to do a thorough job of this. So this will be a little superficial, but still, this will give us some rich ideas to sink our teeth into. And then finally, we'll sprinkle throughout it some thoughts about why it matters. So what? The fact that we believe X and not Y, what difference does it make? We'll explore. Now we're going to be pretty general with our so what this morning. We'll get more specific in coming weeks. Okay, but why the Nicene Creed? Well, the Nicene Creed has been a standard declaration of faith for Christians for 17 centuries. It's a simple, straightforward summary of Orthodox belief. In the first couple of centuries after it was written, it provided a plumb line against which beliefs could be measured and right-sized. In other words, it helped the early, fast-growing Jesus movement maintain their hold on right belief. In later centuries, it provided a helpful script for saints to remember, to explain, and to defend the Christian faith. Remember, during these centuries, the world was largely illiterate. So this simple economical statement of faith was profoundly important. Let me say a little more before we jump in. If you're already a believer, then the Nicene Creed is a little like our mission statement. It doesn't tell you everything about Christian doctrine, but it does give you the basics. It's not the whole story, but it's the plot summary. And, and reading it or believing it doesn't necessarily make you a participating member of the organization, but at least it gives a, a clear picture of what we believe. If you're not a Christian, this creed will give you an outline of what you're missing. Now, in the end, you may end up saying, not much. Okay, fair enough, but I hope not. I hope you'll see the richness and the stability, the orientation that right Christian belief gives us. So we're going to be navigating faith, what we believe, why it matters. I've been praying that this would help orient us in our profoundly uncertain times and that it would fill us with hope and that it would excite us about what we have because of our faith in Christ. Okay, to begin this morning, I'd like to ask you to say the first stanza of the creed with me. So let's say this together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So in this short stanza, there are four titanic themes lined out for us. Oneness, fatherhood, almighty, and maker. Today we're going to look at three of those themes. We'll save fatherhood for next week. All right, first, we believe in one God. Now, when we say this, I can't help but think of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. This is perhaps the most famous set of verses in the whole Old Testament among Jews. It's called the Shema. It has its own name. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. 
Hear, O Israel, it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now remember, in the ancient world, most people believed in many gods. Every natural phenomenon, every inexplicable force of nature was attributed to one kind of god or another. So usually individual gods operated individual activities or phenomenon like the sun god or the moon god or the god of the harvest or the god of prosperity. Against this backdrop, God, the one God, revealed himself to Abraham and then to Moses. I am it. I am what I am. There is only one force, one driver, one cause behind all causes. There's none like me. And a whole library of saints has heard God say almost exactly that same thing. But how can we believe it, right? That's what we're saying. We believe in one God. How can we believe there is God? Of course, I can't answer that question in a 30-minute conversation. I couldn't answer it to everyone's satisfaction if I had a lifetime. But let me offer you a very brief summary of four ways that theologians and philosophers have argued for the existence of God over the centuries. And I, and I hope this helps with the we believe part. First, there is the cosmological argument. In short, we believe in God because he is the best explanation for the existence of something the question is, did something come from nothing? And if so, how? I'm reminded of the way Albert Einstein explained his own scientific work. He said, I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. Now, Einstein didn't really believe in a personal God, but you can't do science, especially at a theoretical level, without running into questions about God. According to the cosmological argument, the very existence of our universe argues for some kind of profound cause. It argues for something like the Christian concept of God. A second way philosophers have argued for the existence of God is the teleological argument, which really just builds on the cosmological argument. It, it looks specifically at the order and design of our universe. In short, this argument says that the highly calibrated order of all things, especially thinking things like us, couldn't have happened by accident. The teleological argument is really the old watchmaker argument. You know, if you discover a watch on the beach, you would never suspect that the random churning of the ocean had by chance produced something this intricately designed. You would assume there had to be a watchmaker. So the existence of the universe assumes something like the Christian God. A third argument is the moral argument. By the way, these terms don't matter. They're used mostly by others to impress us, and I'm using them this morning entirely to impress you. Anyway, the moral argument begins with what seems to be our innate sense of right and wrong that all humans seem to have. Where could this possibly come from? According to the moral argument, the Christian concept of God presents a perfect answer. Finally, there's the argument based on common need. The common need argument says that our deep longing for God and consistent, almost universal thoughts about him suggest that he exists. Look at another example. Our hunger drive suggests that there's something in the universe like food that would satisfy that drive. In the same way, we have this long-running affair with the idea of God across all time periods, across all cultures. We just sense that there's something more. Perhaps that sense is based on our fear of the unknown, but According to the argument of common need, the Christian concept of God offers an even better explanation. Let me add one more note to that. Along with this sense that there's more, 
many of us believe that we have actually experienced something of that more. We've felt God and we felt his absence. We've been moved by him, changed by him, guided, protected, expanded by him. If you add all of that up, that's a lot of testimony. Now, in order to disbelieve in God, you have to assume that most of humanity got it wrong or is just making all this up. That's a lot to assume, right? And by the way, for those of us on the inside of belief, let me remind us that this experience of more business that I'm talking about, this is one of the reasons we gather together. This is one of the reasons we sing and pray. This is why we recite the Nicene Creed, to remind ourselves of what we've experienced. We believe in one God. Listen, it may surprise you to know that in all of this, we completely agree with our Muslim friends. There is no God but Allah. Allah being the Arabic word for God. There's no God but Allah. He's alone and he is one. But as we'll learn next week, the idea of oneness is mysterious and very complicated as it relates to God. And what else would we expect? God is and he is one. However, we have to add Jesus is his son, true God from true God, and Muhammad is not his prophet. So in that way, we very much disagree with our Muslim friends. We'll find out more about that next week. Okay, our second Titanic theme is Almighty. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Now, the Bible is literally full of stories that illustrate the almightiness of God. That's one of the main themes. There are also numerous poems and songs that sing about this truth. Psalm 24, 8, for example, says, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. The prophet Jeremiah is riffing on this point when he asks rhetorically, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then Jesus reminds us, With God all things are possible. And, and Paul encourages us that God is, is able to do far more abundantly than, than all we can ask or even think. In summary, God can do anything that his perfect, holy, just, good, and righteous will desires and designs. Let me repeat. God can do anything that his perfect, holy, just, good, and righteous will desires and designs. However, there's a limit. God cannot and will not act against his own character or will. To do so wouldn't be an exercise in power. It would be an exercise in hypocrisy and purity, frankly. So the next time somebody asks you, can God make a rock too big for God to move? Then I want you to answer, no, he cannot. And yes, he can. Because the question is ridiculous. It's philosophical doublespeak. It's stupid. But it does highlight for us that God's almightiness does not and should not move him to act in ways that are contrary to himself. That would not be almighty. Now, the gods that occupied the ancient world, they acted randomly. The God of the modern world is often weak and absent. The real God, the one God, is not either of those. He is purposeful, intentional, and always present, and he is unlimited in his ability to execute his purpose and his intention. God is almighty in acting on his goodness. He's almighty in acting on his holiness and his purity. He is almighty in securing his perfect plan for the universe and for you. What he wants accomplished is good and perfect, and what he wants accomplished is accomplished. Now let's pause here for a second. I think we have to admit that there is a dark side to this titanic truth. 
Almighty God. If this is true, then it would make sense that occasionally people who believe in God would be frustrated. If God is Almighty, then it would seem that people who believe in the Father Almighty would sometimes wonder, what are you doing, God? Because sometimes things go very, very badly. And wouldn't an Almighty God address that? And this is exactly what we do find in the testimony of Scripture. We find people with that question. Job asks God, why? The psalmist cries out to God, how long before you intervene? What are you doing? Isaiah begs God to break open the heavens and come down. Do something for your people. Jeremiah wonders aloud why he was ever even born. No, he regrets that he was ever born. The testimony of Scripture is very honest and gritty on this point. Alongside the great chorus of praise in the Bible, it's as if there's a minor chorus of something along the lines of, Almighty, will you have a fine way of showing it? But ultimately, the testimony of Scripture is unanimous. Ultimately, even when there is no answer given, there is still surrender. There's an acknowledgement of our place, and there's an acknowledgement that God is indeed Almighty. Ultimately, there's a recognition that you are God Almighty, and I am not. For example, after Job questions God, God responds for three chapters. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead the bear out with its cub? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? And after God's three-chapter epic mic-dropping explanation of place, Job acknowledges his own unworthiness and he says, I now know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me. Here, I'm going to speak and, and I'll question you. I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in ashes and dust. Almighty God. Now, this is a wonderful and terrifying truth. It's wonderful because he's on our side. It's wonderful because he can do it, whatever it is. Whatever need arises in your life, God can meet it. What a mighty God we serve. And it's a terrifying truth because his mind and his purposes are his alone. And they often don't conform to ours. It's terrifying because God owes an explanation to no one, especially us. Bottom line, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. And no matter what the circumstances of our lives are, There's always someone who is much, much bigger and much, much more powerful than us who is involved. We can disbelieve him, we can rail against him, or we can submit to his sovereign movement. The choice is ours. The final titanic theme in this opening stanza is maker. And and this may be the most important theme of all. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I say that maker may be the most important theme, partly because at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, at the beginning of the whole story of humanity, God is introduced to us, not with a list of characteristics, not with an image, or even with a proper name. He's introduced to us through his activity, the activity of creating all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
And the Apostle John agrees in Revelation chapter 4, saying, You created all things, and by your will they exist. And Psalm 33 sings the same refrain, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood forth. Something out of nothing, by the sheer power of his will and his voice, And the authors of the creed actually borrowed part of their language from the Apostle Paul, who said, For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then Paul specifies, he says, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. This means, of course, that the creation of something out of nothing includes the creation of a spiritual world and its population, along with the physical world. Psalm 148 sings in agreement. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. And then the psalmist gets earthier. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord. And here's the punchline. For He commanded, and they were created. And the created things here includes earthly things and heavenly things. We believe in God who's the maker of heaven and earth. Okay, so what? Well, there are two profound implications that flow out of God's creation of the world that show up throughout the Bible. Self-expression and control. Now, these help me both in my understanding of God and they help me in my praise of God. Self-expression and control. First of all, let's consider the idea of making something as an act of self-expression. Every work of art is in some way an expression of its creator. This is why King David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Like all creative projects, the universe reflects its maker. It testifies to his creativity, his orderliness, the intricacy and care of his design. This is what theologians called general revelation. In other words, God has shown himself in a general way to everyone through what he has made. I mean, we can watch the orbits of the stars and know that God isn't random. Or as Einstein put it, God doesn't play with dice. There's rhythm, rightness, order to God. We can visit a field of wildflowers and know that God doesn't run out of ideas. We can snorkel in the Caribbean and first of all be very happy, but also we can know that God is a being of infinite joy. God is the maker of all things And all things are expressions of himself. And the highest expression of himself, the very pinnacle of this idea is us. Now that would be an arrogant thing to say if God had not told it to us himself. We are told plainly in Genesis 1 that we were made in the very image, the very likeness of God. Let's repeat. God's clearest expression of himself was us. King David is overwhelmed by this idea. In Psalm 8, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider the heavens, he muses, the moon stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of us? Human beings that you care for us. I don't get it. In other words, I feel so inconsequential, God. But then he acknowledges, you crowned them with glory and honor and made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Creation is an act of self-expression for God, and the very height of that self-expression is us. So what? This is a big one. Well, the application of this theme to my life is one of the most difficult of all truths for me to really get my mind and heart around. 
so profoundly difficult, but I'm convinced that if my heart really got hold of this truth, it would change everything. Here it is. God really loves me. Actively, completely, all in, without conditions, sacrificially. God really loves me. I think if we got hold of this one, we'd start a revolution. Listen, you may hate how reserved you are or how awkward or how slow-witted or how short or how thick you are, or you may hate your legs or your stomach or your hair or lack thereof. You may hate your nose or, or your neck or your teeth. You may hate your voice or the way you sneeze in front of new people or the way you freeze in front of new people or the fact that you don't get more done. You may hate these things. God does not. He loves you in every delicious detail. Now, certainly God doesn't love your sin. He doesn't love what you sometimes do to yourself or with yourself, but you, he loves. He's your maker and you are an expression of himself. I wish I could talk us into this truth. I cannot. The heart has to experience this one. And, and when it does, everything changes. God loves me and God loves you. The second thing that God's creation of all things implies is God's control. It's not just that God can do whatever he pleases. He actually does it. He accomplishes his purposes and designs right now in the present. The biblical word for this is sovereign. God is sovereign over everything all the time. His rule over his creation right now all the time is sovereign. Psalm 24 explains the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The idea here is that God is not just the initiator. He didn't just make stuff and stand back and watch how it performed. God is still making. He's still creating within the universe, within and through our lives. He is right now creating the holy, good, and perfect future that he originally designed. And this is so important for us to remember, to actively remember, because it has profound implications for how we live. God is the maker of all things, including us, including now. This is true, not in some vague religious sense, but this is true in an active, real world, right now, everyday sense. He's not surprised by the coronavirus or by my life in quarantine. In fact, he's still in control. He's still making his purposes. He's still accomplishing his will through me today. You know, there's a whole section of the Bible that scholars have often recognized to be pregnant with this theme of creation. It's in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapters 40 through 45, read this section sometime with that in mind. It's fascinating. A good example is Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. Isaiah says this, speaking for God, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you though you've not even acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And listen to his wrap up. I form the light and create darkness. Did you hear the present tense in that? And then he goes on. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. Right now, today, God is intimately involved in his creation. He's continuing to make in the present tense. And that's so important for us because that's what gives us hope. That's the foundation of all real hope. Look, 
If I'm stuck in a job working for a company that's awful and there's no one who has the power to change it, I have no hope. The same for an awful marriage, the same for an awful political situation. When there's no possibility of change, no power to redirect and remake, then there's no hope. But God can make prosperity where it did not exist previously. Again, listen to Isaiah's answer to a particularly discouraging time in chapter 40. I love this one. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you speak, O Jacob? Why do you, why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? God doesn't even know anything about me, in other words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Look, even youths faint and grow weary. Young men fall and are exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord, they'll renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not be faint. There's hope. Because God is the maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, and He is remaking my life right now. He can create a new tomorrow for my marriage. He can make a bright future for my sons even when they face current failure. He can take dry bones and breathe life into them. He can take our messes and redeem them and create out of them powerful and positive testimonies. He can take the, the misspent life and remake it into a life that will accomplish good and great things. All right. God does as he pleases, and what pleases him is good. So for you and I, it's about finding our place. I must surrender. I am loved, and that is the answer to everything I need. And there is always hope, because he's the maker of all things, and he's still making. Let's pray. God, we believe in you. One God, real God. Almighty, our Father, maker of heaven and earth, all that is visible and invisible. And you're still making today, so we place ourselves before you and ask you to make of our day and of this week what would be in line with your purposes, what would increase our holiness, and what would be good for us, Lord. We put it in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.